This is the Education Gadfly Show. Not what she said. That, that's how we would have at Florida. We would have just come right out and <laughs> it, called it what it was. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrelli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Robin Lake. Robin, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be back. For those of you that somehow don't know, Robin is the director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, which has been doing the best work of any outfit in the country when it comes to tracking the impact of the COVID crisis on our schools. Seriously, you and your team, I don't know, you must not be sleeping, but you're just doing an amazing job. Oh, thanks, Mike. I do have a great team. I just want to do a little quick shout out to there are, you know, a team of amazing folks who have been working yeah. around the clock. Yeah, no, it's really uh, such great work. And uh, it's so hard when we get to these kinds of crises. Well, with these kinds of crises, there's no crisis like this, right? But but we are so reminded about how decentralized and fragmented our education system is. And, you know, that has pros and cons. Uh, we'll talk about that today, maybe uh, when we get into the discussion. But, you know, also just really it makes it hard to have any sense of what's happening out there and to know what's representative. And so you've got a representative sample of districts and some charter schools, and, and you're able to help help us understand what it looks like, you know, not just in the big cities that tend to get the biggest, the, the most media coverage, but all over the place. So. We appreciate it. I'm sure the reporters do as well. So thank you again. All right. Well, we are going to talk about one of your latest analyses, uh, and let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Okay. So, Robin, uh, you guys have done uh, just as a really cool analysis, which is uh, to look at where schools are reopening in person and where they are not, where they're doing remote learning instead. You are then trying to also look at the local virus uh, situation as tracked by the New York Times. They've got county by county data on what percentage of the community seems to have this coronavirus rate, the test positivity rate, all these sorts of things. And you're trying to understand uh, what patterns you might see that, that you know, if we technocrats were in charge, Robin, what we'd want to see is more or less the places where there's not much of a risk from the virus, although that risk is lower. You'd see those places uh, reopening, at least, uh, you know, for kids a couple of times a week with social distancing. And in places where the virus is still rampaging, you would see those schools closed and, and doing remote learning instead. Is that what you found in your analysis? Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, good. I love it. Yeah, suspense. suspense. Let me just take a step back. I mean, um, we so yes and no, I guess, is really the proper answer here. All right, I'm a researcher. Evidence-based policymaking is a, is a good thing, typically. And so we have been trying to understand what evidence people are using to make their decisions. And one thing that caught our attention was, our first pass at the representative sample that you referred to showed that we saw a real divide between urban areas, suburban areas, and rural in terms of their reopening plans. Really different approaches where the urban areas were much more inclined to go fully virtual and the rurals on the other extreme much more inclined to go fully in person. And so that made us wonder, well, uh, is that just a function of local health conditions or is there something else going on there? So that's what we wanted to dig into. And um, as you say, when we put up the health guidance with the reopening plans, 
there was a lot of overlap, but we were interested in knowing where there wasn't overlap. So we wanted to know where are there districts that are reopening fully in person when the health guidance, and we used Harvard's health guidance, when the health guidance would say, eh, it's probably not a good idea. And we called those ill-advised districts. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to know, on the other hand, are there districts that are um, going fully virtual, even though the health guidance suggests that they could probably open in person. And we saw that they were um, both um, in the ill-advised category and the kind of, I think of them as kind of the overly cautious folks. Um, there was a pretty significant number. So about seven or 8% in both of those categories. All right. Okay. So this is, a, thank you for correcting me. All right. So I had it wrong. So really you do see a relationship in a lot of places. Uh, yes. Um, okay. Yes. And, All right. Yes. And, mm-hmm. yeah, all right. But there are these exceptions and the exceptions are interesting, right? Because the places that tend to be overly cautious tend to be in politically blue areas, right? And the places that tend to be uh, the, uh, what'd you call them? The allow teachers to get killed uh, places. <laughs> That's not what you said. That, that's how we would have at Fordham. We would have just come right out, Robin, and <laughs> called it what it was, throw teachers under the bus uh, places. No, those were in politically red. I'm uh, nothing area. if not tactful. Um, yes, you are that. Uh, all right. So, right. I mean, we know, I mean, and, and look, we know that especially in Florida, the flight, fight in Florida has gotten a ton of media attention and in some other Southern places where they have come out and said, you know, teachers, you know, we want kids in school, ideally five days a week. And then we've gotten a little bit of press attention, maybe not as much about places where, you know, actually the, the coronavirus situation has gotten much better. And yet they're still not willing to do in-person instruction. Those places tend to be politically blue, have strong teachers unions and the like. And so this is this political question. Now, you know, some people have pushed back. Matt Barnum on Twitter uh, from Chalkbeat said, you know, something effective that, you know, of well, of course, there's going to be politics involved because, you know, schools are democratically run and, you know, policymakers have to tra- weigh different trade-offs. So he said something like that. And uh, that's political, right? How do you weigh the trade-off between, you know, the hit to the economy if you keep schools closed versus, you know, some risk to some staff and faculty and, and maybe a few kids getting sick or worse uh, if you do open? You know, th- those are, th- this is a classic political decision of you- you've got competing interests and competing trade-offs. Everybody would agree that it's bad for kids to not be in school. Everybody would agree that we, you know, we don't want our teachers and other staff to get sick and, or, or to die. This is a hard situation. So wh- what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a reason we have um, politically appointed um, or elected school boards that, you know, there's, um, the, the democratic process allows communities to come together to set values, um, and that can be an important thing and a tricky thing in, in education. In my view, um, that kind of democratic debate can be really great around setting values around um, what kinds of learning is most important, what kind of characteristics do we want our you know schools to imbuing kids and what skills and you know all that but when it comes to health um, and safety it seems to me that the issues are more straightforward it's a matter of life and death literally and I'm not sure we want to have a lot of democratic debates about that especially when the larger debate is being politicized as much as it is and so you know my view is in a vacuum, local politics will do their thing. And that's what we're seeing play out right now. In some cases, uh, it's necessary for states and the national government to set some standards 
um, around health and safety in particular, I think this is one of those cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easy to make that case, I think, when it comes to these places that are not being cautious enough, right? I mean, that you say, okay, I'm sorry, Republican governors, you've got some places where the virus, you know, spiked in the summer, it's, you know, still hasn't come down enough. You just, it's just not safe to have people in buildings, you know, any of these, you know, talking about kids being inside, you know, in groups, in places that don't have great ventilation for a long period of time, you know, that is dangerous. But there's the flip side, which is, again, in these places that uh, where the virus has maybe never been all that bad or has come down dramatically, and they're still not willing to be open. You know, as listeners know, I, I spent much of the summer kicking around Maine, and there were places up in Maine, you know, counties where they had three cases, you know, for the entire so far, and other places where it's still, in most parts of the state, not that bad. And, you know, there's districts talking about five days a week because they have, they are so fortunate. Of course, it could change, uh, but, you know, they're very fortunate. They've had some strong policies and they're just lucky to be isolated and that they can do that. And, and yet there's some other places in New England that are pretty similar that are not willing to reopen. And, uh, you know, it seems like the reporting and the anecdotes are because the, the teachers unions, the teachers are nervous and the unions are strong and they've just said no. And and again, if it's health and safety, the question is, well, some of those kids are going to, there's going to be bad things that are going to happen to some of those kids because they're at home instead of at school. You know, there's going to be child abuse that doesn't get reported. There's going to be other negative you know, ramifications. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to mention the learning loss. I mean, you know, this yeah. is, the, the kids' futures are on the line here, and this um, and this is not just about individual um, rights or opportunities, but also, you know, there are costs um, to future earnings to states mm-hmm. and and the GDP, and so. I don't think this is something to play with um, and let politics just, you know, take its course. On the other hand, I'm not advocating for slavish, automatic mm-hmm. uh, response to guidelines. But what we don't have right now is any clear guidance for school districts about what's the right thing so mm-hmm. that they can manage the politics of their local community. We're seeing, we're just doing an analysis right now, we'll come out next week, I think, uh, looking at state guidance and how much variation there is in state guidance. It's all over the place and mm-hmm. it's not providing any guidance at all. And so, you know, we picked Harvard, but is that the right metric? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody <Yeah>. say. <laughs> Right. Well, one one more question, Robin. You know, I know you're trying to look at nationally representative, but it's tricky because the virus is playing out differently. It's also, by the way, not just the virus. You look at rural areas, they tended to have less of a challenge, at least in most of the country with the coronavirus, but they also have bigger challenges when it comes to connectivity. So it's not surprising that you see more rural schools opening up for both of those reasons. But I would be curious if you took a given metro area that basically had the same situation in terms of the coronavirus, you know, say Boston, where things aren't too bad right now, or New York City metro area where things were terrible and now they're much better. You know, it sounds like your argument would be pretty much all the schools in those metro areas should be making more or less the same decisions when it comes to reopening or not, right? They're facing the same health issues or not. And, you know, and yet the variation we see, of course, between district, charter, and private schools is interesting. I'm also going to be curious, though, between different kinds of school systems, especially in places where they don't have these huge districts like we do where I live, but these smaller districts that tend to be very much divvied up by race and class. You know, do you see the districts that have affluent parents reopen because those parents have as much political power as the teachers unions do, whereas the, 
the higher poverty ones do not open because those parents aren't politically powerful? Is there a size factor? You know, why do we see the urban core districts all staying closed and some suburban? Is, is it power? Is it size? How do you make sense of that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot more analysis to be done um, by us and, and other people to try and figure that out. You know, this is just one one swipe at it. And so much more to learn as we go. I think the suburbs are a particularly interesting place to look right now around those politics um, because of the, the power of affluent parents going up against teacher union politics. And, you know, we're seeing in a number, a number of suburban areas that... Um, that union politics are winning out and the suburban families mm-hmm. are just, you know, taking matters into their own hands and creating pods or going private. And so what, mm-hmm. what would that mean? A lot of fascinating questions. I do not pretend to have any yeah. of the answers to your question. I'm not advocating that every community needs to operate in lockstep, but I do think we need to ask why are these things happening and make it just transparent. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it could be, you know, certainly we know that parents of color are more worried about the virus maybe than some other parents are and have expressed in a lot of the surveys that they're more interested in staying remote, Mm -hmm. uh, likely because of, uh, you know, that this has really hurt their communities more in terms of the health issues might also be that they don't trust their kids schools as much. Uh, yeah. to, to provide health and safety issues. I mean, I will be interested someday if we can do an analysis where we say, okay, take schools or districts that were high performing before all of this, especially if you evaluate it the right way, you know, value added growth models, something like that. High poverty districts that were beating the curve, whatever. Were they also the same ones that were more likely controlling for everything to open up and get in-person instruction? You know, they, in other words, is there just something about uh, look, districts that are well run uh, are going to be able to meet this challenge? You know, if the health conditions allow, and and some that just are dysfunctional organizationally or politically just are not. They're just not capable. And in the same way that they can't. Uh, face many of the other challenges that, that that they've had to face over the years. Yeah, well, I think there's a real leadership story that's starting to emerge from the districts we're looking at. Um, you know, you use the term well-run, that sounds very, um, you yeah, know, technocratic and things. Mm-hmm. There's a real um, interesting set of lessons, I think, that we'll be learning about how leaders in these areas marshaled their communities and brought their communities along uh, along their plan, even if it was not a popular one. I mean, this is good old felt managing politics, but that's what a lot of amazing superintendents are doing right now. And we're seeing um, some flexibility in the charter and private world as well playing out where, mm-hmm. you know, folks are um, determined to, to figure out a way to um, serve kids creatively and, and as fast as possible. That's a great way to end. Robin, thank you as always for coming on again. Thanks for the great work you're doing. Robin Lake, the director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education. Hope you'll come back again sometime soon. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. And also joining us, David Griffith. David, welcome to this portion of the podcast. Hey, Mike. You're telling me we don't cord these things all in a row? Sometimes we do not. And David was uh, still traveling back from the West Coast when I just taped that interview that we had with Robin Lake. You guys both missed a great interview. You should go back and listen to it. Robin's shop. Man, they are burning the midnight oil, putting out so much amazing analysis. We really were. That was actually very close, Mike. We were in the Seattle area. So. Yeah. Well, there you go. Doors. 
Yes. And a long way away from everyone, basically. Yes. All right. Well, Amber, what do you have for us this week? All right. We got a new study that examines the relationship between test-based accountability and the effectiveness of school finance reforms, uh, where researchers leverage variation in the timing of school finance reforms relative to states' adoptions of test-based school accountability. So we're going back in time a little bit. They estimate and compare effects on student achievement in 13 states that had accountability systems in place at the time of their school finance reform with the effects in 12 states that did not. So I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, They take advantage of the wave of adequacy court cases that began in 1989. We hopefully remember those, which were driven by provisions in state constitutions that required legislatures to guarantee a minimum level of free education to all students. Basically, the resulting funding scheme substantially raised state transfers to low-income districts. At the same time, Test-based accountability policies were gaining momentum, and although NCLB ensured nationwide adoption of accountability, 30 states adopted, quote, consequential school accountability systems prior to 2002 with NCLB. So we've seen similar studies like this before. So in short, 25 states had school finance reform sometimes between 1990 in 2011. So analysts define those 25 as treatment states, and then they break the treatment states into two buckets. One bucket had test-based accountability in place at the time of the finance reform. That's 13 states. Those are the, quote, accountability states. And then on the other hand, 12 of them did not have accountability in place. And those are the non-accountability states. And then we've got 23 states without school finance reforms during the study period. They're the control states. Basically, the analysis rests on a natural experiment that assumes that the timing of the school finance reforms is as good as random. Okay, that's the big assumption here. They use NAEP restrictive data for student achievement, and they use data from the F33 for school district revenues and expenditures, and then they classify districts into income quintiles, and they focus the analysis on the highest and lowest income districts. Key finding, the effects of school finance reforms on student learning were driven entirely by those states that had test-based accountability in place at the time. For low-income districts in these states, results show that test scores improve around 0.012 standard deviation each year following a school finance reform. In contrast, the corresponding estimate for low-income districts and states without an accountability policy is less than a third of the size. Moreover, after accounting for trends leading up to the finance reform, so controlling for that stuff, Uh, The effect for accountability states remains the same in magnitude, but the effect for the non-accountability states basically becomes insignificant. So they posit that school finance reforms, quote, cause test score increases in accountability states, but not in non-accountability states. But then they test whether that's true. Could there be other things going on instead? So for instance, maybe it's the effect of the finance reforms on low-income district spending is larger in accountability states. But when they dig into that, they find that the resource effects of these reforms are largely similar. So, for instance, low-income districts and non-accountability states, where, again, they don't find much evidence of student achievement gains, increase spending by around 9% on average following the finance reform. But the comparable figure is 7% in accountability states on average. So it's not a huge difference in terms of the amount of spending. They also don't see evidence that the local spending share or the student demographics change 
in the low-income districts in either the accountability or the non-accountability state. So they do a bunch of, you know, robustness checks and that sort of thing. And then they close by reiterating that it, it sure seems like accountability systems improve the efficiency with which additional school funding gets spent in part because these accountability systems create rewards or sanctions for schools based on student performance. The end. The end. Cool. The, the end. Are you kidding me? This isn't the end. This is the beginning. Ah. It's the end. Of it's the beginning of education history, Mike. Oh my gosh. Look, this is, this is huge. It's so important, right? Because here we are at this moment in time when it almost feels like there's a consensus that, well, we should just give up on accountability. That was the old agenda. We need a new agenda. Uh, look, if you still care about getting better results for kids and you're looking for policy levers, these are two big policy levers. And the answer is you got to do them both. I just think this is hugely important and, uh, and pretty exciting, you know, and look, let, let's also acknowledge that there have been times when those of us at Fordham have been skeptical about increasing spending as a lever that's going to boost achievement. There's reason for that skepticism. There's plenty of time when it was hard to make that case based on the research literature. Uh, but here you go. If you boost spending, especially for poor, uh, poor districts and hold them accountable for results, you get better results. It's pretty clear cut, right? I mean, should there be more nuance here, Amber? David, what? <laughs> I mean, it, Amber, is, is it the right way to think about this as sort of an interaction effect? I mean, yeah. right? Like, so yeah. accountability, as I'm understanding it, I mean, the study didn't look at this, but as I'm understanding it, accountability works regardless, regardless of what people think, I guess. It seems to work a little bit. Uh, spending can work if there's accountability and spending plus accountability works even better. Is that kind of right? right. It's like, an, that's exactly right. It's sort of complimentary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it would be wrong to say that accountability works better with spending. Right. But we're saying that it's sort of like accountability is like a force multiplier for spending. Is that the right, right way to think? Yeah, about I, I think so. I mean, that, it's definitely an interaction. It's definitely how they, how they complement one another. It's kind of like you're supercharging accountability. Mm -hmm. And look, let, let, let's not pretend that these two things are not connected, because certainly these days when there are school finance cases, they often point to accountability systems, right? They say, well, the state has said this is what it takes to be a well-educated person. And therefore, the fact that they're only getting 40% of kids to that level is a problem. We need to raise spending to get more kids, especially kids of color, to that level uh, in order for the state to, to feel like it's fulfilling its constitutional responsibility, right? I mean, so so there is, a, you know, in, in the policy world, a connection between these two things. But, you know, you so had, that- but, I had it backwards, right? Your, your force, it's a, spending is a force multiplier for accountability, not the other way around. Well, you know, either way, let's talk about the- Yeah, okay. In, in, in the real world today, the problem, of course, is that States are looking at huge funding cuts likely in the in the year ahead, unless Uncle Sam comes to the rescue. And again, the consensus around accountability has all but disappeared. And in many places, the accountability systems have all but disappeared. I mean, we have what might be considered transparency systems still in some places with right. ratings. We don't have that much in terms of actual accountability. Uh, and I don't mean just because right now we didn't test last spring and there's a debate about whether we're going to test this spring with the pandemic, but just that, you know, since ESSA, you know, there's not a whole lot in place where there are consequences for low performing schools or districts, right? But we do still have ratings in a lot of places. Ratings are actually better than they were in many cases un than under No Child Left Behind, but they're hanging on by their dear life 
And so what we don't want to see is, uh, you know, a move away from both of these promising levers, uh, the spending that can be so critical for equity issues in, in high poverty districts and accountability, uh, which puts healthy pressure on school districts to pay attention to, you know, to improving achievement when the local politics are such that they have uh, incentives to pay attention to everything but that on any given day. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing they weren't able to dive into is to look at the components of accountability that might be driving the effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, your point is a good one, Mike. I mean, is it going to be enough, right? Just to have ratings or five stars or whatever, or do you also Mm -hmm. need all the carrots and sticks that we had within CLB? That's the question that we, we don't have answered here. I mean, their point is that, you know, the accountability seems to, quote, improve the efficiency by which additional monies get spent. And so, right, are there other mechanisms by which we can, you know, quote, drive those efficiency gains? And I think that's what we don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. How are we defining accountability here, just so I'm clear? It's basically that there are rewards and sanctions for school districts. It, It wasn't like nailed down precisely. See, I'm so in the charter world. I, I I hear accountability. I just think of a school rating, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, there were a whole suite of stuff. You know, the cascading sanctions under NCLB that we, we had. Not much anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and what? However, Tom D. I mean, they had an earlier study with about consequential accountability. They used that definition, uh, whatever that was. So. All right. Well, it's a really important study. Thanks for bringing it to us, Amber. And now for Indeed. us, policy wonks and, and the advocates out there, the challenge is clear. We 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 gotta defend. Uh, both the the funding systems and the accountability systems. All right, gang, that's all we got for this week. I am looking forward to us all being together again now that summer vacations uh, are almost over, I think. Uh, so uh, yeah, one more coming up later. Uh, okay, Amber's got one more coming up. Fair enough, fair enough. But soon, soon we'll be back on a regular basis in full force coming to you. But until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.